Okay, let's go ahead and turn to our scripture that can be found on your bulletin as we look at Galatians 3, 1 through 5. This is Galatians 3, 1 through 5. And the subtitle in the scriptures is By Faith or By Works of the Law. Paul continues to uh, argue with the Galatians, the Galatian church who is, fall, who is in the process of falling away from grace and the gospel. They have been influenced by outside forces and it is affecting them. And, and Paul is pulling out all the stops and communicating to them the danger of the route in which they're walking. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? The word of the Lord. Well, many of you think you know me as Carlos Rodriguez, but really that's just almost a shortened alias of my full name that I have yet to disclose in my nine years at Redeemer until today. So I will share with you my full name, which is Carlos Don Juan Esteban Rogelio Sanchez Jesus Luis de Bobon Butros Butros Gales Guillermo Villas Juan Carlos de Marcos Lopez de Salamanca. That is my full name, and I am an international man of mystery. Indeed, I am that guy in the beer commercial considered the world's most interesting man. I have many different identities and go by many different pseudo-titles, but certainly not as many as Frank Abagnale Jr. I don't know if you recognize that name. He was written about and actually uh, portrayed in a movie called Catch Me If You Can, which was with Leonardo DiCaprio who played Abagnale and Tom Hanks who was the agent going after him. This guy was so successful at posing as different people that even before his 19th birthday, he had conned people out of millions of dollars. He was an accomplished check forger as well. But some of the various personalities that he uh, counterfeited and acted as was a, a Pan American pilot, a Georgia doctor, and a Louisiana prosecutor. You never knew when you were talking to him whether you were speaking to the real Frank or the counterfeit Frank. Now the reason I bring up Frank Abagnale Jr. is because the Galatians are dealing with a similar situation. They for some reason have become and started to believe in a counterfeit Jesus rather than a Jesus, the real Jesus. He has morphed into someone that looks kind of like Jesus and yet is not Jesus at all. They have begun to worship and follow a counterfeit Jesus. And as Paul examines this house of cards, this sham that is being put before them, he asks the question, who has bewitched you, Galatians? In other words, who has pulled the wool over your eyes so much that you think that this counterfeit Jesus is the real one? You see, these Galatians have started following a Jesus without a cross. Not a crucified Jesus, but a Jesus who can help them with their spiritual walk. And so Paul says to them, who has bewitched you? In effect, who has mesmerized you to follow this Jesus and not the real one? 
Because the truth of the matter is, and we know this, that there is only one Jesus, a crucified Jesus. And there is only one Jesus worth following, one who is crucified. And so we must follow the real Jesus and accept no counterfeit. We need to do a little bit of a post-mortem on the Galatians and figure out what happened. And so we're going to look at three things. Number one, who has bewitched the Galatians? What happened to them so that they started following this counterfeit Jesus? Number two, who is the real Jesus that they should be following? And finally, number three, what are the consequences of following a counterfeit Jesus? Because there is only one Jesus worth following, and that's the crucified Jesus. Well, let's begin with point number one. What has happened to the Galatians? Paul speaks here in chapter 3 and says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, it's very interesting, this phrase, Oh, foolish Galatians. I don't know if you've ever started. It doesn't happen often with the Bible with the word, Oh. But you may do this sometimes when someone has done something so asinine, so dumb, that in starting, to them, in starting talking to them, you go, Oh, oh. And that's what Paul is doing to the Galatians. He's saying, oh, foolish Galatians. The word foolish is a nice translation of the Greek word, which is only used one. A much more accurate translation would be stupid. Paul is using the word stupid, a, a divine use, an apostolic use of the word stupid. Oh, stupid Galatians. Paul can say this to them because he's their spiritual father. And he's not speaking of them as stupid in the sense of they lack intelligence, but rather they're not using their brain. It's like they have shut off the thinking, logical element of their brain as they are following blindly this Jesus. And so Paul asks the question, oh, stupid Galatians. And notice he doesn't use the word, which he normally uses when addressing congregations, oh, foolish beloved. Or, oh foolish brethren. Rather, he uses their term of where they are from. Oh foolish Galatians. In other words, you're acting like everybody else. You've gone back to who you were. You're not acting like brethren. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, this word bewitched is a very interesting one. It comes from a notion back then that dealt with sorcery and magic. It's called the evil eye. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of the evil eye, but they have found uh, letters in history where people would write to one another and they would finish with the phrase, beware the evil eye. And what the evil eye was, was they believed that some people had the power to cast a spell on someone by looking at them uh, through the eyes because the eye was the window to the soul. Indeed, they believed, that especially they were afraid for children, that someone could stare at them and gaze at them and cast an evil eye on them and thus mesmerize them to do their will. Thus the evil eye. And so he's saying, who has cast an evil eye on you? Who has cast a spell on you? The best example that I can think of this is actually from the Jungle Book. Remember the giant serpent, Ka? As Mowgli's walking through the forest and Ka goes ahead and sort of stops and starts to talk to the man cub. 
And by the way, in the original Jungle Book, the, the person who voiced Ka was the same person who was the voice of Pooh Bear. And I have been screwed up emotionally since as I have sort of put those two together. And remember what Ka would say as his eyes would begin to spin and Mowgli's would spin? He would say, trust in me. Just in me. Shut your eyes and trust in me. You can sleep safe and sound knowing I am around. Slip into silent slumber, sail on a silver mist. Slowly and surely your senses will cease to resist. Trust in me, just in me. Shut your eyes and trust in me. This was Ka's uh, spell that he would cast upon people before he would eat them as he cast the evil eye. And so what Paul is saying is Galatians. Someone has mesmerized you so much that you are leading off, you are heading off into destruction. Now Paul knows the answer to this question, who has cast the evil eye upon you, Galatians? And it is these who belong to the circumcision party. We've been calling them the Judaizers. They are Christians, so they think, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It's just that they believe that Jesus is not enough. They believe that one should believe in Jesus, but they must also follow the Mosaic laws and customs. Really, specifically, more the ceremonial laws. They must observe the different feasts. They must eat in a certain way. They can't eat with Gentiles. They must check off the boxes, so to speak, to ensure they follow the law of Moses. And when you combine Moses and you combine Jesus and you get to the end of your life, you have salvation. Sounds like an inoffensive message enough. But nothing could be more offensive and dangerous than Jesus plus something else. See, it's an attractive message, right? Because you can do something. You can justify your existence. You can put some spiritual effort into things. But the reality is they have lost sight of the power and significance of the cross. And so Paul continues on in verse 1. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Notice what he's saying. It was before your eyes. Now it is extremely unlikely that anyone at Galatia was there on that hill at Golgotha when Jesus was crucified. So what does he mean by it was before your eyes? What he means is that the gospel message is so powerful that there is life in the message of the gospel that as it is preached, it is as if you are seeing the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The gospel has the power to turn the ear into the eye. You have seen Christ in that sense, have you not? If you are a Christian, as you heard the message of the gospel, as you heard the message of the cross, and you were cut to the heart, when you realized the sacrifice of Jesus, and that it was for your sin and mine. Paul is saying, oh Galatians, it was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. This word publicly portrayed could also be translated as placarded or in our current 
uh, language, billboarded. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was billboarded as crucified. We all know what a billboard is, don't we? You're driving down the road and there's this giant, giant sign that is designed to do what? To attract your attention so that you can clearly see what is being offered. And Paul is saying this and because he knows it, because he was the one that preached it to them, that it was before your eyes that Jesus was set as a, that Jesus crucified was set as a billboard before you. In other words, how can you miss this? And notice what Jesus was publicly portrayed as. Not publicly portrayed as the virgin birth, though that was important. Not publicly portrayed as the King of kings and Lord of lords, though he is. Not even publicly portrayed as resurrected, but publicly portrayed as crucified. You ever wonder why we wear a cross necklace and not an empty tomb necklace? The empty tomb is extremely important. Without the resurrection, Christianity does not stand. But without the cross, the resurrection has no significance. Because it is in the cross that we see the reality of who we are and of what we need. It is in the cross that we see the desperateness of our condition and the lengths of God's, what if God is willing to go and do in order to save us. The Galatians have been mesmerized by something else. And what is it that they've been mesmerized? It's by the law. They've been mesmerized by the law. So much so, remember, that even Peter was led astray following the customs of not eating with Gentiles, as I preached on last week. They've been mesmerized by the concept of living by my performance of being able to do something to show my holiness, to justify myself before God. We know that there were Jews in this congregation as well as Gentiles. It's like they're literally going back. They're in a time warp as they have been mesmerized. And they have taken Jesus and they have toned down the cross. And whenever you tone down the cross even a little bit, it's as if the cross didn't exist. I... Uh, had a haircut this weekend, you obviously noticed. Normally I bring in Fra Fabrizio from Milan on the Redeemer corporate jet. But alas, Fabrizio was not available, so I went to Great Clips. And of course the conversation came up, what do you do for work? I said, I'm a pastor. Oh, sometimes that brings a lot of silence. <laughs> this gal was okay with that sort of bit. She said, I like religion. I said, I don't. She says, I think that the Bible is a good thing to read. And the Bible can be for you whatever that you need it to be. It can give you whatever it is that you want. It's almost like a magic mirror. Remember that, that mirror in Harry Potter where you can look at it and it can give you any image that you want? That's what this woman was saying. And I stopped there Actually, I did nothing. She had the scissors. And I said, I want to explain to you the difference between good news and good advice. Oh, what's that? Good advice is when you hear something, some tips that will help you out, and if you do them, life will be good for you. I said, what's good news? 
She said, it's something that's already happened. I said, the Bible isn't good advice. What you need to do, what the Galatians are doing, it's about good news. The good news of someone that already lived and died and rose again so that we would not have to face the bad news at the end of our life that we are sinners. See, the reality is this woman, like many people, like sometimes us, prefer a sterilized Jesus. Jesus that is nice and clean, that can give us some good advice, and that we can go and take it from there. But not a bloody Jesus, not a crucified Jesus, not a broken Jesus, not a Jesus that had to come for us. Not a Jesus that we must put all of the weight of our hopes and expectations on or we are doomed. What about you? Perhaps you have been mesmerized. Maybe not by the Mosaic law, but something else. So when you look at Jesus, what do you see? Teacher Jesus? The Bible is whatever I need it to be. I can come to him. He can set me on his lap. He can give me some good counsel and send me off with a pat on the back saying, go get him. Maybe it's political, Jesus. Jesus has the power to help make things right in this country, finally. So if we follow his statutes, love those billboards, what America needs is to return to the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm not at all against the Ten Commandments. I think they're very good moral lives to live. But following the Ten Commandments is going uh, to direct you straight into the mouth of hell without the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? Maybe it's a clean and a polite Jesus. The Jesus you can talk about at a dinner party. The Jesus that doesn't challenge you in the way that you live or challenge your sense of good reputation and self-esteem. But the Jesus that Paul is preaching and the Jesus that you must follow is a crucified Jesus. You must stare at him. See, it's necessary that he died. It's necessary that his blood flowed. Jesus Christ had to die or we all are lost. But the beauty is Jesus Christ wanted to die. God sent his son and his son came willingly to give his life on a cross so that we would not have to. His life for mine. His reputation for mine. The great exchange it is called. Because there's only one Jesus worth following and that's a crucified Jesus. So follow him and accept no counterfeit. That really brings me to my third point. I kind of lumped one and two in there. The consequences. Paul asks a series of questions. This is exactly what you do if you have a, a teacher in uh, here and school is about to start and you're going to begin speaking with them and they will be in some sort of stupor, if you will, so much that you have to sort of slap them around rhetorically to wake them up. And so Paul asks them these rhetorical questions to try to get back to the reality of what their deluded thinking, where it's making them head. And he begins with this in point two. Let me ask you only this. 
Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, when Christ came to you and introduced himself to you and you received his Holy Spirit, was it because you had made the cut or made the grade or was it because you heard and you believed? Was it from trusting in your own righteousness or was it from hearing with simple faith? Makes me think of that tax collector and that Pharisee in the temple, remember? The tax collector comes in to pray to God. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like all of these other people, even this tax collector. And he goes off to list all of his religious accomplishments as if to say, thank you for letting me in, here is my key. But the tax collector would not even look up to heaven, but stood off at a distance and beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this man went home justified before God. Why? Because he fell upon the mercy of God. And the mercy of God has been revealed in the crucified Jesus Christ. So how did you do it, Galatians? And how did you do it, Redeemerites? Did you figure this thing out yourself? Or did Christ come to you? Was it Jesus who brought you to himself or you who brought yourself to Jesus? The Bible uses two analogies when speaking of being born again. That's one, from birth, being born, and the second is coming from death to life. And the reality is nobody births themselves, do they? And nobody comes to life on their own. You could spend all the time you wanted in a graveyard. You'll never see somebody come out of it on their own, just reaching out through the soil. The reality is we receive the Spirit by hearing with faith, not by works of the law. So I can imagine the Galatians going, oh, yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. And that brings us to the next question that Paul said, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you going to be like those people who are building the Tower of Babel? Remember, let us build a tower and make a name for ourselves as it reaches up to the heavens. And so you begin your Christian walk through the grace of Jesus Christ. But it's time to build. That part is over with. Now it's on me. And so through whatever religious rules I can create, I begin to build my stairway to heaven. Are you really going to make it? Are you really going to be able to stand before God in perfection, saying, gaze upon me, God, I am righteous and I belong here? The answer, of course, is no. Without Christ continuing to stand at the right hand of the Father, to advocate for us, to remind the Father of the blood that he has shed for us, to shield us from the accusations of Satan, we will all be surely lost. But because of Jesus, we need not fear. 
We can run to the Father because our heart has found a surgeon. Right? Our soul has found a friend. And so even though we sin, again and again and again, we can run to the Father. And He always takes us with open arms. Jesus said, whoever is in my hand, no one will ever snatch them out. I've marked them with my name. And that's what Paul is saying. Oh, Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What about you and me? How often is the cross of Christ before us as we walk around? Or is it me, 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 instead of him, him, him? Is it worry, worry, worry? Or believe, believe, believe? The life of a Christian is to be a life of repentance and faith. Not in myself, but in him. Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. In other words, Galatians at the beginning, when you said I'm all in, even if my family deserts me and casts me out, even if I can no longer work in this town because the guilds demand that I offer incense and sacrifice to their patron God, these Galatians have gone through it. They've made their decision. They have made their bed and they're lying in it. And Paul is saying, why are you getting out? After all of that sacrifice, was he not really enough? Because the idol that they're worshiping is not enough. And whichever Jesus that you follow, if it's not the crucified Jesus, he'll never be enough. He'll always let you down. But a God who would be willing to get up on a cross and die for me, how much more will he give me? How much will he watch over me and care for me and sustain me? Did you suffer so many things in vain if it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, this Jesus who performed these miracles, this Jesus who healed the sick, who healed the blind, who rose from the dead, who rebirthed you and is doing wonders in the midst of your congregation, did he do it because you deserved it? Or did he do it because he loves you? It's a great question for us as well. Why does Jesus love me? I had to wrestle with this question for quite some time. I hope you have as well because it's the most important question that you can answer. Why does Jesus love me? Now, well, Jesus loves everyone. You know, he loves all the children of the world, red and yellow, black. Now, why does Jesus love me? Because Jesus did not die for everyone on that cross. Did you know that? Jesus died for his people. The Bible specifically says it. Don't, don't hate the messenger. Jesus died for me on that cross. And you know why he died for me on that cross? Because he loved me. And because he wanted to. And it's the same for you, Christian. And when you finally get a hold of that and recognize and realize that the cross is enough, 
That is the start to perfect freedom. And so I finish with this point. It's the point I've been making this whole time. There's only one Jesus worth following. And it's the crucified Jesus. So follow him. Put him before you. Run to him during your days. Again and again. Accept no counterfeit. Because he's the only one worth following. Let's pray. Lord, it's so easy to be mesmerized by the messages of the world that say either to follow someone other than Jesus or a Jesus that's stripped of his cross. But Lord, you left the nails marks in your hand and in your feet and the mark in your side so that we would know that that is part and parcel of who you are to us. And so let us follow you just as you are. I pray all of this in Christ's name.